Good afternoon from the Calyx Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, profiling, nurturing. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Marwan Saba. We'll discuss Alzheimer's disease. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good, pretty good. Excellent, excellent. Party on. So, Charles, do you live in a good neighborhood? I live in a neighborhood where people get shot on a daily basis. <laughs> well, it sounds like Oakland. Well. <laughs> Most other big cities. <laughs> it just adds to the spice of life, really. <laughs> so the bullets missed you, then. But at least I need more lead in my diet, my doctor says. But you should be glad you're alive and intelligent. Because it turns out living or growing up in a disadvantaged neighborhood can have deleterious consequences on your intelligence. Really? Yes. And the study, which took place in Chicago, now gives further credence to the whole nature versus nurture debate, saying that nurture has a much bigger impact. And what they've shown is that in these uh, trials led by Robert Sampson, he found out that when you have children grow up in so-called concentrated disadvantaged areas, their cognitive abilities were noticeably less than peers who or not. What they did was they looked at their verbal skills and other characteristics for children between the ages of 6 and 12 over the years of 1994 and 2003. They found that the people who grew up in these disadvantaged areas had, on average, four points less on their IQ tests, which is the equivalent of one year of schooling. Mm. Certainly, everyone knows that that's sort of the time that's critical for the development and education. So right. really, uh, that's where most of the effort needs to be expended. And without those kinds of opportunities, problems can exist. It's really not surprising. I think just suggests that we need to put more effort into ensuring right. good education for everyone. Right. This was reported in our favorite journal. Wow, we haven't had something from there in ages. <laughs> well, you know, I realized that they actually published a tip sheet. And this is from the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, PNAS. Well, I'm just so excited. We finally had another story from our favorite journal that I'm hardly able to see straight. (laughs) It's exciting, huh? It's so exciting, I might not even recognize you. (laughs) You ever have that problem, not being able to recognize somebody? You know, I don't even recognize myself sometimes. (laughs) You have just such an average face. I know. I strive to be ordinary. (laughs) And actually, that's a technique that uh, researchers are trying to use to help improve computerized identification of people, is to use averaged faces. Well, isn't that how all the undercover TSA security guards try to do? Be average travelers? (laughs) So they just blend in. Yeah. Yeah, but this is actually trying to refer to, uh, for example, looking at a security camera to see if you can spot in a crowd some known felon or terrorist or just anybody, right? Right. And the problem is that a lot of the captures that you have, when you compare it against a database, the database images are one single picture. Okay. And so there's a lot of noise in that from the environment, lighting Mm -hmm. conditions that can confound the comparison. Right. So these researchers, led by a team at the University of Glasgow, psychologists Rob Jenkins and A. Mike Burton, essentially used a feature where they create a model of a person's face using 20 images to create an averaged image of the face. Okay. And now when you do a comparison with this average template, you get much better matches. 
And so they're suggesting that this might actually be a better method for storing profiles of people's faces, constructing averaged profiles of their face such that they're easier to recognize by the computer. So they would have to have multiple images at least. Yes, okay. so that is one, one thing. This was published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Rocks Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Marwan Sabal will join us to discuss Alzheimer's disease. So stay tuned. the Grok Science Show. Well, for most, the idea of aging gracefully is often tempered with a slight trepidation brought on by the realization that diseases such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's may affect the quality of the golden years. But are there ways to prevent the onset of such diseases? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Marwan Sabah. Dr. Sabah is a neurologist and director of the Sun Health Research Institute's Cleo Roberts Center for Clinical Research, where he's a leading investigator of Alzheimer's prevention and treatment trials. Author of numerous publications, he has penned the new book, The Alzheimer's Answer, Reduce Your Risk and Keep Your Brain Healthy. Dr. Sabah, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Slant Show. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I'm sure most people are well aware of Alzheimer's disease, but how endemic prevalent is Alzheimer's in this country? Unfortunately, very much so. We're talking about 5.1 million Americans at this time. The statistics are really staggering. One in 13 Americans over the age of 65 have it now. By 2010, it'll be one in 10, and by 2025, one in seven. So this is not a rare disease. It's an extremely common disease. So the incidence is increasing. Correct. Wow. How does this compare with other countries? Some countries more, some countries less. It's kind of in the middle of the pack when it comes to comparison to northern European countries, but it does differ around the world. I see. And is there a reason why the incidence seems to be increasing? 
yeah, part of it is the population's aging. Uh, life expectancy in the year 1900 was 47. In the year 2000, it was 77. In the year 2100, it's expected to be 92. Uh, so that's the first thing that has been a contributor. But there are other things that have increased as well as we have wiped out infectious diseases that were contributing causes of early death. Now we're seeing other diseases kind of take root, which are all risk factors for the development of Alzheimer's. So in part, it's uh, an aging population and other uh, diseases which are promoting the development of the disease. Right. So genetics, environment, diet, health habits, uh, medical comorbidities are all interacting in an aging population. So what is the known cause for Alzheimer's disease? Well, Alzheimer's disease, a lot of those things contribute to it. We know that with the change occurring in the brain of a person with Alzheimer's is they're accumulating proteins they're not supposed to. These are proteins that are abnormal byproducts of other proteins that, when going correctly, should not be accumulating these proteins. Does this occur strictly because of those genetic predisposition or is it because of risk factors? We think it's a lot of things combined together that seem to confer the accumulation of amyloid or a specific kind of amyloid called a 42 amino acid amyloid. And then that type of protein tends to be very toxic to the brain. The brain does not like that kind of protein. And then other reactions occur as a result of the presence of that. But this is a long time. It takes years. This is not a sudden event. I mean, people start accumulating these changes in their brain 20 to 30 years before the first day of forgetfulness. I see. So it's a gradual buildup of the uh, proteins over time. Correct. Correct. Uh, as I recall, there was some bit of controversy over whether or not it's the A-beta protein or the tau protein that's really causing this as a solution. I think they're both related. I think mm-hmm. the A-beta is a triggering event. I think tau, some of the data suggest that tau tends to be a better predictor of the decline than the A-beta protein. And there is some interaction. Somehow A-beta's presence seems to be triggering the changes that occur inside the cells related to tau. Although that link is not so clearly identified, they're both offenders, as it were. But I guess in terms of daily risk factors, you talk about a number of them in your book, among them things like obesity and high blood pressure and cholesterol. I mean, how do those things relate? Yeah, so we have, generally speaking, two groups of risk factors, modifiable and unmodifiable. Unmodifiable is, you know, your heredity, your family history, your age. But modifiable ones, we now know that things like diabetes is an independent risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. Your waistline, your uh, midlife obesity is a risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. Cholesterol and homocysteine and other things that we know what is bad for the heart is bad for the brain and that's kind of where I'm going with a lot of these things in the book is that these are modifiable and if you aggressively address them the end point isn't simply that you're reducing your blood sugar in the case of diabetes but you might be preventing your Alzheimer's or delaying your Alzheimer's and so there's specific recommendations that are centered around these which are specifically intended to help prevent the onset of dementia. I see. Uh, maybe we can give some of those uh, recommendations. Well, simple things like eating a diet's lower in saturated fats, exercising. There was just an article today in USA Today about a link showing that the people who are physically active with ex- physical exertion have better cognitive outcomes. And that's kind of something I had already mentioned in the book, which is that uh, physical activity in animal models uh, seems to protect against the production of amyloid production in the brain. Mentally stimulating activities has been shown to be useful. Some 
dietary things that you can consume might have some beneficial effects. Modifying your risk factors, keeping your blood pressure under control. It doesn't turn out that every blood pressure pill you could take, but specific kinds have been shown to be beneficial. So what I do is I take a very large body of science and medicine and try to translate that into analyze it critically and translate it into something that's practical and useful. It's very interesting that the types of modifiable risk factors that you mentioned are, in fact, ones that affect a whole host of other diseases. Correct. Correct. You know, it's the evolution of scientific thinking, and, I mean, that's not true to Alzheimer's. It's true for a lot of diseases. For years, first of all, Alzheimer's gone through the phase of being recognized for what it was. I mean, there were decades, literally, where they did call it senility and hardening of the arteries, and Grandma just was kind of forgetful. We now recognize that all those senility and hardening of the artery was actually Alzheimer's. So that was the first thing is to recognize the disease. And the second thing is is we have now identified, we used to think that Alzheimer's was a, a brain sequestered disease, that we think when you got it, it had nothing to do with anything else in your life. And so the third wave of discovery is now realizing that the Alzheimer's is linked to other things that happen in your person's life. And that's the kinds of things we're trying to focus on. And then the fourth will be, of course, to intervene to prevent the inevitable demise. Uh, so what are some recommendations for people who might be highly at risk for Alzheimer's then? Right. Um, the first thing I say is, and I really emphasize this, is that we need to embrace the concept of prevention. And it has to start today. The, today is the first day of your prevention of your Alzheimer's. Do not wait. Do not wait for you to start getting forgetful before you're trying to, to take these measures. Because, in fact, by the time you start to become forgetful, the amount of disease is probably quite significant and less likely to have changed the overall outcome. Uh, So, you know, on the overall overarching premises, embrace prevention today. Uh, The second thing is, is that there are certain things you can eat in your diet. For example, eating antioxidants in your diet. You know, your mom told you to eat your fruits and vegetables. Well, that's a good idea in general, but not all fruits and vegetables are going to give you any good benefit in terms of your prevention of your Alzheimer's. We know, for example, that blueberries will work better to prevent your Alzheimer's or at least have better antioxidant properties than eating oranges. It turns out that that actually works better than eating most fruit and most vegetables, mm-hmm. but green cruciferous vegetables. Uh, fish, not going to Long John Silver, I mean, not to say <laughs> Long John Silver isn't yummy, but it doesn't have any anti-Alzheimer properties. You really have to eat specific kinds of fish that are high in omega-3s, and I talk about which ones, I talk about how often you should eat it. Actually, the work done in Chicago, Chicago has one of the best, most renowned research groups looking at interaction of dietary consumption and risk of Alzheimer's. That's the group out of Rush. So there are a lot of things you can do, and the intent is to empower the reader to take uh, prevention and do it personally and right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting that so much of medicine now is moving towards this preventative care. Do you see that as a major movement, or do you think people are still looking for those curative types? Well, Alzheimer's disease will be the poster child for a trend toward prevention. Pharmacological measures are only really specifically intended at this point to treat symptoms once they have occurred. If we wait for prevention studies, and I talk about this a lot in the book, prevention trials have been done in Alzheimer's disease, but they are very expensive, very huge number of participants, and they're very long. If we wait for all those to occur, it could be many years before we see any positive outcomes. The other challenge we face is that what might work in treatment may not, or I should say what might not work in treatment might work in prevention. 
So that's the kinds of things I'm trying to propose is that the interventions should be done sooner than later. The future of Alzheimer's is very bright. It's going to go through three generations of change or three waves of change. Number one is Alzheimer's disease will go from a terminal disease like a Lou Gehrig's disease to a chronic disease like a diabetes. That evolution is occurring right now as we speak. The second wave will be to take individuals and be able to identify them, profile them on the basis of genetic analysis, molecular identifications, imaging, and look at their lifetime risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And the third wave of the future is the prevention strategy. So that's kind of looking down the road, but that's the overall trends that I see. And so now that we're in this chronic phase, is there good ways of managing the disease to prolong the period? Yes, they're getting better. I think that the management issues are going to be, we're still kind of early in our management of Alzheimer's disease. We are probably today where multiple sclerosis was about 15, 20 years ago. And what you're going to see is that uh, we will be able to identify people early on the medication we have do have some benefit in some people for some period of time. But in the near future, we will be able to intervene with people early on, identify them when they're forgetful, determine that they're on their way to Alzheimer's, and then give them a cocktail of medications, kind of a chemotherapy approach, in a way that will slow their rate of decline or stop their rate of decline. The idea is not that we're trying to add years of life, but to make those years better. And that's something that we, uh, if you're a nihilist, kind of say, well, what's the point of treating? You're just going to prolong their suffering when I'm trying to say to you that we can make those years better, not necessarily more. I'm curious, how far along is such things like genetic profiling? Are there good markers for Alzheimer's? Yeah, there are some markers. The genotyping that we have commercially available now can give some measure of risk. In other words, the blood type you can actually have ordered today will give you some measure of risk, especially insofar as it is related to your family history. Although the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Neurology do not recommend testing of asymptomatic people. So somebody might call you after the show and say, where do I get the blood test for Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. And that thing we only do in people who are symptomatic already. But there are a lot of research studies underway being done all over the country looking at genetic gene arrays and proteomics arrays that will be able to determine risk. And I know several biotech companies are working on that right now. What are uh, medical therapeutics like right now? Medical therapeutics right now have been historically focused on symptomatic benefit, but the next generation of drugs starting in 2009 and every year after that are focused on disease modifying, whereas they're not trying to prove your symptoms as much as they're trying to specifically slow down the disease. And there are over 60 drugs in clinical trials now for Alzheimer's disease. It's a very exciting time. It's a tragic disease. I don't want to mislead you. It's a very tragic disease. But it is also a very exciting time because there are a lot of things in development. I mean, it's interesting. You sort of have a, a, a dual background, both clinician and a researcher. What is your perspective from both sides of these? Uh, I am really glad to have both perspectives. You know, people look at me like, why would I do Alzheimer's? It seems to be very depressing. But putting my hand in the research world gives me the optimism I, I need to continue to convey to people that uh, it is going to get better and it is already getting better. In reality, and scientists and researchers all over the country are already starting to see this, patients are not declining as fast as they used to. Is that serendipity? Is that better medical care? Is that because our drugs are working? Yes, maybe all of those things. Hmm. But the fact is, is that as far as we can tell, 
the rate of decline has dropped by about 40% across the board. So the medical interventions to some degree are helping, and that's a good first step. And you're also starting to see the concept of taking current medications and combining them so that the concept of polypharmacy is moving forward, and that's really the future, is a chemotherapy approach. It's to take five or six or seven pills or different medications every day, kind of like we do with HIV. I mean, when you think about it, it's not, you don't take one HIV drug, you take four or five or six. And that's what's going to happen with Alzheimer's as well. Hmm. What's your recommendation for people who are at risk for Alzheimer's or maybe also for the families of people who may be having to help care for uh, Alzheimer's patients? Yeah, I actually care, once the Alzheimer's has set in, it's kind of going down a different path than where this book is intended to go. In Chicago, it is the motherland for the Alzheimer's Association. So fortunately, they are very active advocates for the people with Alzheimer's and have a lot of services available to provide to families with Alzheimer's disease. And so the first thing I say is contact your local branch. I know what it is in Arizona. I talk to them daily as basically we're partners in the care of these people uh, that we're trying to improve their outcomes. Uh, the other thing I would say is seek treatment early, seek diagnosis early, get away from this concept that you cannot diagnose Alzheimer's disease during life. That's kind of the popular myth. I think we can do a lot better in 2008 and that Alzheimer's disease is treatable and you can improve the years remaining. So the message is really one of hope. Yes. Okay. Well, Dr. Saba, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today and, of course, talking about your book, which is, again, The Alzheimer's Answer, Reduce Your Risk and Keep Your Brain Healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're just listening to Dr. Marwan Saba discussing Alzheimer's disease. This is the Berkey Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. I forgot to remember to forget her. Grokatron 5000, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, worth remembering or just forget about them. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they're worth remembering or you should just forget about them and maybe a little reason why. Uh, You ready to play the game? Yes. All right, here we go. Person number one, worth remembering, forget about them, Paris Hilton. Forget about her. (laughs) Her celebrity is not based on any merit. Uh, number two is uh, Microsoft Chairman Bill Gates. Worth remembering. He is, turns out to be one of the largest philanthropists to humanity in the history of the world. Yeah, he's really doing a lot of good with the Gates Foundation now. Yes. Uh, number three is the famed Oliver Sacks. Worth remembering. Has taken very complex scientific thought and translated into very enlightening and engaging stories. Yes, I think he's really popularized a number of very interesting uh, conditions. Yes. 
Uh, number four is the uh, basketball star Shaquille O'Neal. Well, I'm seeing Shaquille O'Neal tonight because he's a Phoenix Sun. That's I'm actually right. going to go see him play. I'm very excited. So <laughs> uh, I think worth remembering. Okay, very good. Are they excited to have him there in uh, Arizona? Oh, it's the talk of the town for sure. <laughs> okay. Okay, and finally, number five, President of the United States, George Bush. Wow, that's a controversial one, and that will display my politics. I unfortunately think that he's worth forgetting. He will go down. He'll be in the bottom quartile of presidents in American history, if not the bottom. Yeah, indeed. I think a lot of people would agree. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, Dr. Sabo, I do want to thank you very much. Talking about your book, which is, again, The Alzheimer's Answer, Reduce Your Risk and Keep Your Brain Healthy. Thank, thank you. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Perfect Rocks, and now here's Doc Brown with the answer to this week's question of the week. Marty, you've got to do something about your kids. Uh, well, I'm not Marty, but... <laughs> Marty! Marty! <laughs> okay, dude, okay, calm down here. You've got to come back to the future! <laughs> wow, that's all the flux capacitor. Using the Tesla measurement. Tesla? That's right, Marty! Tesla, the measure of the magnetic field! Ah, okay, okay. But my name's still not Marty. Let's go back to the future, Marty. Let's go now. Hey, thanks a lot, Doc Brown. And we will see you in the future. We're going to the future. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.